Hi, folks, and welcome to another episode of IC Data People. Today, we're joined by Dan Huss, the founder and CEO of Gravity AI. Welcome to the show, Dan. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I got to know Dan several years ago when he was building a product at State Street and realized that there was a need for a platform to supply data science algorithms to enterprise in a regulatory compliant way. Uh, shortly after that, he left State Street and went off and founded Gravity AI to solve exactly the problem that he himself faced. So welcome to the show, Dan. I guess I'm going to start off by talking a little bit about your background, which I know is a mix of consulting, marketing, product. How does that really help you frame your perspective and help you think about what the problems are and why a marketplace solution really was needed to meet the, the enterprise needs of, of some of these data science organizations? Yeah, you know, it, uh, my background really lended itself nicely because you, in, in product and, and in consulting, you're always kind of looking more at like a practical solution to really trying to solve a real problem. And when I, I was at Boston Consulting Group's Digital Ventures for a team for a while, and uh, while I'm not a data scientist, I've got a strong analytics and statistics background as well. So I somehow became kind of like a de facto expert on products that had heavy data science and artificial intelligence components. As you mentioned, I ultimately went to State Street and I started facing this problem where there, despite the fact that there are like thousands and thousands of models being created, some of them for very specific purposes, and obviously the open source community has created a ton of these different models. They're just not really accessible to large companies, small companies, individuals for lots of reasons. One of those reasons, as you mentioned, is are these things compliant in ways that large enterprise needs them? The most egregious example that I faced while I was building my product there was at one point I needed a spam filter. And, uh, you know, we hardly even think of spam as like an AI problem. It's certainly a data science problem, but one that's been solved for a long time. And we found a couple of companies that were able to like supply a spam filter for us and we were going to license it for maybe like a grant per month, something like that. But my compliance and procurement and security team told me it would take 18 months to get them through the process if they made it through the process at all. So uh, long story short, we ended up reinventing a spam filter over the course of three months, probably by my estimates for about 250 grand. So I recognized that despite the availability of these models, there just wasn't a way for companies and individuals to access them, whether that's because of compliance reasons or because of lack of skills and knowledge of data science or simply that you need a user experience slapped on the front of these things for people to be able to make sense of it. This is super interesting. And, you know, unlike other guests in our show, you're neither selling nor consuming data, actually supplying tools and technology that allow others to make use of the data. How do you think this vantage point gives you a unique perspective? You know, I get to see just the huge variety of types of models that are out there, and it is massive. And despite the fact that you have this massive number and variety of types of models, one of the main things that we hear from data scientists who want to leverage the platform to create things and sell them is, I want more data. So you still kind of see a little bit of this data vacuum with data scientists. The, the, the other kind of like really fun vantage point that I get, you know, on Gravity AI, we have like a request system as well, basically a bounty system where people can, you know, post data similar to Kaggle, right? Where you can just post data and like try and get something built. And uh, there is such a hunger for use cases and data among the data science community that they just want to go build stuff. 
And if you're able to supply that, chances are someone will want to work on that problem, which is just, it just shows how hungry this community is for quality data sets. And Dan, you, you've obviously been tracking the data science community now for, for several years. How have the usage of data science and AI tools changed in that, that time period? You know, there's, it's impossible to avoid in the news right now. You know, John Oliver did a segment on, on AI recently, like it's just in the public conscious. And I think when something reaches the public conscious, like it has today, you start to see, obviously, beyond the increased interest in it, you start to see ways that it is going to be much more easily distributed across types of organizations. My, my favorite kind of way to think about this is, and, and we've spoken about this before, but like is the transition that we saw from Web 1.0 to Web 2.0. It's by far my favorite analogy. In Web 1.0, which you know, was like the mid-90s, early 2000s, basically... You had websites that were entirely controlled by a webmaster, and you had to send a ticket to that webmaster to make even the slightest text change on that. And that's because the website required the person who had the knowledge and, and coding abilities to go make those changes directly in the code itself. Then we saw the transition to Web 2.0, which was characterized by things like content management systems like WordPress and other, other platforms that enabled people to access the web in different ways. You still needed engineers kind of behind the scenes to go, you know, create these platforms. But once they were created, there were UI systems, you know, think like drag and drop web design that made it much more accessible to all sorts of other people. Suddenly, everyone had a website. Everyone could go build a website. Well, that same transition, I think, is happening right now. We're right, like, in the beginnings slash early stages of it from, you know, AI 1.0 characterized by, you know, artificial intelligence being completely controlled by data science teams and the people who have the knowledge around that and large organizations who have the resources into AI 2.0 characterized by, well, how do we take these solutions and make them much more accessible through things like user experience layers, through design conventions that allow people to access them and train them without necessarily happening to have this in enormous amount of knowledge it's it's really exciting. Like the just like in the web when we saw an explosion after Web 2.0 of creativity and use cases and lots of failures. Right, think the dot com bust. We had you know we're going to see the same amounts of explosion happening right now of people accessing and using AI in ways that we can't even imagine. I love this. It's like giving power to the day of vendors and data consumers. And let me ask you the next one is. What advice would you give the data vendors and the data consumers? Let's start with let's start with data vendors. Data vendors need a couple things to make this like, and this is gonna like open up a can of words that we can get into. But one of the hardest things that's always been difficult for data science is is prep, right? So if you can remove a lot of the challenge out of the prep work it's going to give you an, a substantial advantage. And I'll, I'll give a really small example. When I was building my product at State Street prior to Gravity AI, we ingested a lot of news. And news has all sorts of like weird things in the text that you have to scrape out of there, right? Like things like author names and dates that like muddy what is actually the content of the news or like footnotes in there. And the sheer act of having to clean that, as most data scientists know, is enormous. 
So if you can provide data in a way that is one has enough metadata around it to make that process easy, you know, it's properly like segmented or labeled, whatever that is, or even just a cleaned up version of that, you're you're going to have a leg up on on anybody else that is selling the data. Both considerations for data vendors as well as people purchasing data, we are seeing the rise of synthetic data right now pretty heavily. And I think that even if you're not getting enough of one type of data, you're going to start to see synthetic data being able to either augment that or create entirely new data sets. And both data vendors and people who are purchasing data for the purpose of training a model need to be aware of this as an option. It's really prevalent right now in image generation. And when you're trying to do things like get enough images of an invoice to create invoice text extraction and create synthetic data right now that works really, really well to augment an existing data set. I know you keep probably closer tabs on trends in AI than pretty much anybody. So I'm curious, what challenge is no one talking about right now? You know, uh, I alluded to this a little bit. And when I say, when we say no one's talking about this, it's it's part of the process that's just not in the consciousness of like companies or as I've mentioned, data vendors, but it's very heavily in the consciousness and talked about among data scientists individually. And that is the like kind of data mapping slash schema mapping slash data kind of consistency. And some of this is stuff that's like fairly simple to, to solve, like date format is my date as month day year or is it day month year is it formatted like you know uh february 27th 2023 or is it formatted 27 february 2023 and all of these small little inconsistencies in data increase the workload on the data science team like by a ton it's actually a lot of work when they go through this so a major challenge that we're not hearing enough about from companies trying to solve things in the data space is the ability to do that kind of data transformation and recognizing data like seamlessly. There are different pro like AIs out there that like, especially with dates, right? Dates is an easy example, but there's much, much more complicated ones where it's like, how do I get this data to match my, you know, requ input requirements and that's not enough. That's a big enough problem that isn't being, I think, talked about outside of the individual data science teams that are like just struggling with this and slogging through it. I think that. And what is your most controversial opinion? Yeah. So like almost contrary to what I literally just talked about with data schema mapping, and, and I'll have to clarify this a little bit. I think my most controversial opinion in the space is that your data isn't that unique. One thinks like this will never work. Like, you know, as an AI marketplace, this is something that I've heard quite a bit and have been like, I prove people wrong constantly. Your data isn't that unique. If you are trying to use something for marketing purposes, the way that your data is structured in your content management system, analytics, or like CRM system, probably is pretty darn close to what everybody else has. If you're, you know, extracting information out of uh, text out of like invoices or whatever it is, they're going to be, again, very, very similar. Now, you do run into some unique challenges, 
But again, it's not that unique. If you can solve the problem that I was just talking about, where like you need to do schema mapping and like some formatting on the data itself, like in an automated way, that's just going to make it even less unique. So, you know, this is the whole whole reason that like transfer learning in AI is so, so successful. You can have a base model that was basically trained on a large subset of data and your data just you only need a little bit of it you transfer learning on one of these large models because it really isn't just that it just isn't that big. all right dan i'm gonna ask you to prognosticate the future now so five years from now what what does the data landscape look like what does the data world look like you know one of my favorite quotes of all times is uh, predicting things is hard especially when it's the future i i think that we're going to see things move a little bit slower despite a lot of the hype that's that's around the space it's it's very, you know oftentimes the the speed of these types of trends is overestimated but impact is underestimated 5 years out i do think we're going to start seeing much much more synthetic data as i mentioned earlier that r- the rise of synthetic data is going to enable new types of models and new types of thinking. You're going to have models being trained on synthetic data. You already see this, right? Like where, you know, image AI can be, you, you, sub, you know, you, you supervise learning to select a subset of images that it creates to then go do better transfer learning of the best images that it creates. So this type of synthetic data in five years is going to be super, super prevalent. You're going to have new types of models creating new synthetic data that are training other types of models. And that's definitely going to happen within five years. The you know other big thing that I think is it's just early stages is trying to truly evaluate data. Like put a like we've always talked about how like data is the new oil. But like actually turning data into an asset on your balance sheet is something that I'm hearing a lot about these days. And several companies are attempting to do this. But there's a really it's a it's a really interesting thought since we've talked about how valuable data is, but we've never put a dollar figure on it. I, I think we're going to start to see that being incredibly widespread within within the next five years. Well, Dan, thank you so much for joining us on IC Data People. Been fantastic to have you. And thanks again. Oh, my pleasure, guys. Anytime.